Coming up today, we delve into the latest European big tech regulation thriller and find out why a spike in hepatitis cases in kids has scientists hunting for answers. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Amit Katwala. Hello. Morgan Mika. Hello. And Grace Brown. Hello. This was the week when Twitter's board agreed to a $44 billion takeover from the world's richest person, Elon Musk. The move has been met with a mix of intrigue and no shortage of alarm, with Musk strongly suggesting he will relax content restrictions on the platform and somehow introduce a system to authenticate all human users. This is the week when the UK faced an acute shortage of hormone replacement therapy, or HRT, which is used by about 1 million women in the country to help alleviate the symptoms of menopause. It's been reported that some women have been turning into the black market to source the medications instead. It was also the week when the European Union announced plans to open an office in Silicon Valley to help America's tech giants adapt to the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, two new pieces of legislation introduced to overhaul Europe's relationship with platforms like Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Google. And finally, this was the week when the UK government announced plans to regulate streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime more tightly. The changes would require streamers to protect audiences from harmful, offensive material and bring them in line with public service broadcasters. So if I was offended by the Netflix reality TV show where you have to guess if it's a sculpture or a cake, I I would be able to write to Ofcom. Yes, although I don't know why you would find that show offensive. I think it's great. It's offensively (laughs) bad. I actually quite, I mean, I'm impressed that they managed to stretch it out to like a several episode TV show when it should so clearly be a five minute YouTube video, but... uh... Yep, well, it's not stopped them in the past. I suppose more seriously, Netflix has variously been, well, not accused, but it's sort of been suggested that some documentaries that Netflix makes maybe aren't as grounded in fact or science or reality as, as they should be, and that by not holding those platforms to the same standards as quote-unquote traditional broadcasters, that they're allowed to put stuff out that might not be quite as reputable. Yes, although I think it's more about things like swearing and nudity i get the sense that it's more about kind of offensive content and the sort of uh ah so angry daily telegraph readers well yeah i wouldn't want to wouldn't want to um, generalize but yeah i think that was the um that's the impression i get from the, the government's stance on these things more generally and, and i guess you know it's another way of sort of shutting down maybe potential political dissent which is what we've seen the uk government maybe trying to do with its uh, threats to privatize channel 4 which were also mentioned in this this set of proposals yes Plus it's um you know defunding of the bbc i think there's a the pattern to which this fits into and i think it also fits into a wider uk government pattern of trying to bring the tech giants under its umbrella i suppose and speaking of umbrellas and we'll get into this in, in a minute when we talk about the digital services act this is the uk implementing or about to implement new regulations on large global platforms so for these platforms i don't want to get out a tiny violin but it does mean that they're going to have to behave in quite different ways in different markets if more countries start introducing more legislation that requires them to behave in different ways yeah or it just means they won't show certain things in certain markets which is already what they do in india and other other markets with tighter restrictions on certain things so you know they might just put the uk into the box with india and just stop us from seeing certain programs good point yeah it'll be interesting to see how it does play out because i think 
I think the UK is a little bit of a front runner in in this kind of regulation whether or not you see that as a good or a bad thing um maybe depends on which side of the political aisle you sit all right what did we learn this week morgan this week i learned that only half of china's over 80s have received two vaccine doses and that number drops to 20 percent when you count the number in that age group who have had boosters so the booster rate is particularly important because china's homegrown sinovac jab is said to be less effective than the pfizer vaccine unless people receive the full three shots. So analysts say the reason for this kind of low vaccination rate in the in China's elderly population is that unlike countries in like the UK, for example, which prioritise elderly residents in their early vaccine rollout, China prioritised its workers. So people who worked in healthcare, customs, food imports, food markets, public transport and for state-owned businesses all got their shots first. Which might help to explain, or at least partially explain, why entire cities in China under its sort of dynamic zero COVID policy are still going into full lockdown because there is that still genuine concern that the healthcare system could be overwhelmed because there is such poor coverage amongst the most vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. So there's 26 million people locked down in Shanghai right now, which is quite crazy, a huge city under really strict curbs. Yes, and especially as we're four people from separate households standing in quite a small cupboard, breathing on each other for the next 40 minutes while we record this podcast. Anyway, Amit, what did you learn this week? Yeah, slight change of tone for my fact. I learned that it takes 120 minutes to hard boil an ostrich egg, or 50 minutes to soft boil so you can dip your giant toast in it. I mean, I guess you just dip a baguette. Yeah, there was an article I was reading on the BBC Good Food website where I was fact-checking this fact, um, not the most uh, robust source, I grant you, suggested that for Easter you could hard-boil an ostrich egg and then they could all dip different toasts in it together as like a group. So the, maybe we could try that next week. The look of delight on your face as you're describing this process is truly a sight to behold. Weirdly, over Easter, I fell into a YouTube hole of watching a German man cook strange food in the forest. Mm. And one of the things he did was... was um, cook an ostrich egg did he fry it no he he hard boiled it i okay. think um but he did it in in a forest for some reason there's like a, there's like a trend for like cooking in a forest like tiktok there's like a bunch of stuff on tiktok yeah, of like yeah. recipes and like kind of it's a bit asmr-y but yeah a bit sort of like really this was an asmr yeah. german man in a forest cooking eggs and grilling meat how long did it take to cook the egg over a fire uh, I mean, the, the video had been edited for brevity, uh, so it was a, so it a solid like eight minutes. Hours. No, you weren't just sitting there <laughs> listening to a man make ASMR noises while cooking an egg for 120 minutes. Um, yeah, so there we go. Thanks, Amit. Our first story this week is about a big moment in the thrilling history of internet regulation. Morgan, as you mentioned earlier, the Digital Services Act was agreed by the European Union a few days ago. It's a story that we've been following for some time, and it's fair to say that this is a pretty big deal. But why is it a big deal? And probably first, what the hell is it? Yes, so the Digital Services Act, or the helpfully named acronym DSA, is Europe's attempt to take back control over its internet. So basically, members of the European Parliament have been busy saying things like, this piece of legislation means it's the end of the digital Wild West where disinformation, hate speech, overly intrusive advertising techniques and illegal products are allowed to roam free on the platforms that we all use. So think Facebook, YouTube, Amazon. So the law doesn't determine what kinds of content are unlawful, but it's supposed to create these systems that give the European Commission a lot more oversight over things like platforms' algorithms or the way they moderate content. So the biggest tech platforms will have to do yearly risk assessments, informing Europe of the risks they see kind of unfolding on their platforms and explaining what they're going to do to tackle those risks. 
So this new system basically treats online platforms as if they were new chemicals, for example. So you can't just release a new chemical onto the market. You have to kind of study its effects, tell local regulators how it affects the soil or the water. And if it does have an effect on those things, on its environment, basically, also outline what your company will do to make sure that that damage is really minimal. Um, but why it's so important is that this legislation doesn't really just affect Europe. Europe is such a large market for these companies that the Digital Services Act is expected to kind of have huge influence over how platforms are run worldwide. So on the day the Digital Services Act was negotiated, uh, Barack Obama, for example, is talking about how it could be a model for America as well. So this all makes sense in theory, but does all of this have any teeth. Let's give you a hypothetical example. So if Elon Musk's deal to buy Twitter goes through and he does something wild and unexpected, which maybe wouldn't be so unexpected given that it's Elon Musk, is the DSA designed to take on that kind of behaviour by big platforms or the people who control them and make sure that it doesn't get out of hand? So MEPs have basically been saying yes. So Twitter is very likely to qualify as what's called a very large online platform in Europe. So that means it has more than 45 million EU users. So that means it'll be subject to the strictest rules included in the DSA. So while Musk has outlined plans to loosen social media platforms or Twitter's content moderation policies, the DSA actually gives Europe's lawmakers new powers to challenge platforms on those policies and basically impose changes. So if Twitter doesn't comply with what the Europe, the European Commission wants it to do, it could face fines of up to 6% of its global revenue. And more drastically, it could even be banned from operating in Europe altogether. I think what we've seen in the grand history of regulation against big technology platforms over the years is grand promises, but not much bite at the end. And what we're now seeing in Europe is that bite. This legislation does have teeth and it's also really, really comprehensive and also somewhat unwieldy, which is probably a result of how long it's taken to put together and the various compromises that have been put in place along the way. But one of the most controversial and interesting parts of this bill is, or or this act rather, is something called the crisis mechanism. And this, if I understand it correctly, is the EU's attempt to set rules for how major technology platforms should behave when faced with a crisis, say a pandemic or a war, right? And this is a fairly last minute edition or the scope of it is is fairly last minute and it's the eu trying to respond to the war in ukraine and the way that it's seen big tech platforms responding to it and the problems that it's had with that response Yes, so we all kind of became familiar with state of emergency powers throughout the pandemic. These are usually ways that governments can introduce strict laws in extraordinary circumstances without going through the slow, regular democratic processes such as getting Parliament involved. So in the UK, emergency powers formed a basis for imposing coronavirus lockdown restrictions, for example. So what the EU has done here within the DSA is create a way that these emergency powers can be introduced online, giving the European Commission basically a lot more power over how social media platforms are run, like you say, in a time of war or another pandemic or basically another crisis that they deem to be important enough to fall under this mechanism. So this idea was a last-minute addition and it was basically inspired by what was going on in the background as Russia invaded Ukraine. So when Europe wanted to ban Russian media outlets like Russia Today or Sputnik, that they said were spreading propaganda. There was a legal basis to kick them off TV networks, but there wasn't really a way to kick them off Facebook, Twitter or Telegram. 
And, and in the end, Europe ended up using the sanctions regime to do this. But it was kind of an imperfect solution and it relied a lot on the platforms themselves being willing to cooperate. So the whole situation made EU lawmakers feel a bit uneasy. So they wanted this crisis mechanism so that they could intervene if Facebook was being used again by another state to spread disinformation. Or, for example, if Amazon was being used to sell fake COVID cures or cures for another disease. This all sounds eminently sensible, but it is controversial, right? Or is this just a good example of big tech platforms getting annoyed at more, as they see it, intrusive and, as we might see it, effective regulation? So I think one of the main reasons it was controversial is because it was such a last-minute addition. So lobbying groups complained and also civil rights groups complained. There wasn't really a chance for this mechanism to be really kind of democratically debated. But also I think it's important to remember that emergency powers are always controversial, whether they're used online or offline. So, I mean, look at the debate about whether coronavirus lockdowns are an example of government overreach. In France, you had a very controversial example when after the terrorist attacks in Paris and in the Bataclan in 2015, you had a state of emergency imposed on the country for about two years. And again, civil rights groups really complained that the raids and arrests carried out under this law gave the government too much power, which they used disproportionately to target French Muslims. So to feel good about the use of emergency powers wherever they're used usually requires you to trust the government that's wielding them. And this is one of the complaints with the DSA's crisis mechanism. It gives a lot of power to the European Commission over how platforms are used in times of crisis. And although this this state of emergency has to be approved by this board, which is made up of representatives of all the EU's 27 member states, it does not get a vote in Parliament. And people were concerned about this. They said, OK, even if we trust the current European Commission, this law is going to outlive that. So what about the next one? So after the recent French election, where the far right won more than 40% of the vote, what happens if Marine Le Pen is the head of the Commission in 10 years' time? And what would she use those emergency powers for? Yeah, and we've already got some countries who are members of the European Union who do have fairly controversial heads of state and maybe the sands of time will lead to a place where even more um, countries are in that position. So protecting platforms against the whims of, say, Elon Musk might be a good thing that this legislation can do, but some MEPs have expressed disappointment with the crisis mechanism, as you said, and also with other areas of the Act that they say didn't go far enough or were missing completely. Yes, yeah, so there was a crackdown on personalised advertising, but some of those rules did get watered down, so advertisers can no longer target children, and advertisers are not allowed to use sensitive data like race, sexual orientation, or political affiliation to advertise to people on platforms like Facebook, but they can still use this data in ads hosted on other sites that produce content, such as news websites. So... Uh, And also, there were also ripples of disappointment about an amendment targeting porn platforms, which ended up being totally left out. So this amendment, which was known as 24B, was designed to crack down on things like revenge porn or other intimate videos being uploaded to porn platforms without their subject's consent. So one part of this proposal, which was controversial from a privacy point of view... Uh, meant it would have forced people uploading content to porn platforms to register with an email address and a phone number. But there were other less sensitive suggestions, which privacy advocates didn't object to, that also got left out of the, the act, such as forcing porn platforms to hire content moderators who have been trained specifically to identify things like revenge porn and creating processes where victims can 
tell a platform like Pornhub, hey, that's me in that video, can you get that taken down? And that platform would have to respond very quickly because there has been some victims complaining that that can take quite a long time at the moment. And that's where the details of really, really large, complicated pieces of legislation like this really matter. I mean, you say there that large platforms like Facebook will no longer be able to use sensitive data to target advertising against people, but news websites will. And you can hear the kind of the screeching of the lobbying that's gone into that decision being landed at, right? The the news media has for well over a decade criticized heavily Facebook, Google, etc. for taking so much advertising revenue. Is there an attempt here by the European Commission to redress the balance or should laws and rules that apply to Facebook and Google also apply to the likes of the New York Times or Wired? Well, I think, I mean, that was a big issue and kind of lots of people complained that the news that the news media did mean being allowed to use this kind of targeted advertising did mean it had been watered down. But I think also what the porn amendment demonstrates is that if you maybe don't have a kind of like a big lobbying group fighting your corner, it's very easy for these amendments to kind of get shoved off the table. And I think lots of people were quite disappointed by that happening and disappointed that they didn't have anyone in their corner fighting for this. So why did that happen? Was it just a result of a a lack of lobbying power? Or is there something more complicated going on here that resulted in some of these crucial amendments around pornography and non-consensual pornography being left out? So sources involved in the negotiations told me that the amendment was basically traded out in political haggling. So to reach an agreement on on a law like the DSA, three European institutions have to have to negotiate the text. But this is essentially a political negotiation. No one looks wants to look like they let another institution walk all over them. So I was told what happened was the European Council told the Parliament they could only keep two or three of their amendments in the text. They had to lose some basically to get a compromise. And apparently what porn the porn platforms, the one targeting porn platforms was the one that got ditched. Basically it wasn't their priority. Very few MEPs were willing to to fight for it. Sources told me that there was this feeling that there wasn't really a great level of understanding among MEPs about the problem, how many women it affects and kind of what it does to their lives. Um, And I think also politicians don't really want to talk about porn. It's not a very nice subject to be seen talking about all the time. But this made a lot of feminist groups pretty angry. They said it was basically another example of issues affecting women getting left out, although it's important to say that men and LGBT groups are also affected by these issues, by revenge porn. And the issue of non-consensual pornography is one that's been around for a number of years and it is really, really nasty stuff that has horrible impacts on people's lives. But you can see how in those halls where decisions are being made that if the group of people making those decisions perhaps doesn't have lived experience that is relevant to the things that they're making decisions about, we see this in politics all the time, right? That, as you say, it just wasn't prioritised because they weren't able to grasp how important solving this issue is. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, talking to talking to women who had experienced this, so for the article that we published on Wired this week, we spoke to someone called Inez, who, is, who it happened to, whose, whose video ended up on porn platforms and also on social media platforms, and she described it as living with a disease that she can never get rid of, and it kind of hangs over her lives, and now she helps other women who have also experienced the same thing. And she kind of said that if she knew, if lawmakers knew how she felt and how other people this has happened to, 
felt she thinks that the outcome would be totally different but she she doesn't think that there is that understanding so there is still real progress to be made but the introduction of the dsa isn't the only thing that's been keeping the european commission busy over the last several months so last month it agreed upon the final text of the digital markets act or DMA, that's DSA and DMA, which is confusing at all, which is an attempt to limit the harm caused by big tech companies in Europe, but in a different way. They have annoyingly similar names, but these two pieces of legislation are really quite different. So how do you see them working in tandem? Yes, so the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act are two parts of this kind of twin legislation that is the most significant overhaul of European tech legislation in basically the past two decades. So just think how different the digital world was 20 years ago. Facebook hadn't launched. I hadn't even set up my MySpace page by then. So these two laws are basically designed to be up-to-date legislation for today's internet. So while the Digital Markets Act is an attempt to limit the harm big tech causes to markets by suffocating smaller competitors, the Digital Services Act aims to tackle the damage platforms can cause to European societies. So it's supposed to be kind of this this 360 tool to tackle kind of everything, all the ways that these platforms are affecting our lives. So how they actually turn out remains to be seen, but it could bring about serious change if, and it's a big if, they're properly enforced. I feel like you're ending on a very serious point there, but I just want to pick up on something. MySpace, you had a MySpace page. Yeah, didn't everyone have a MySpace page? I, of course I had a MySpace page. I was going to say, yeah. Amit, you strike me as someone yeah. who definitely had a very well-maintained I MySpace was page. so well-maintained. Can you talk yeah. us through what was on your MySpace page at uh, its peak? Uh, there was a photo of me in full email splendor. Uh, there was my top eight, carefully curated list of my, my eight best friends. And um, if, if you fell out with anyone, you would quickly change it of up. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Very political. Uh, there was some uh, ultra cool music videos uh, embedded in the HTML code. Uh, I believe it was all black with some uh, nice, yeah, little flourishes here and there. It was great. Morgan, uh, similar. I also had my emo fringe featuring heavily <laughs> on my MySpace page, and also I think towards the end of my time on MySpace, you could choose a song that soundtracked your MySpace page, which I was quite into. Although I can't remember the song. That's that very I chose. convenient, Amit. You want me to? Do you want me to tell you what song I had? I want you to sing Definitely. the song. I don't think I can sing the song. I had a um, I, I had the uh, the knife on there for a while, which is an electro Swedish like electro pop band, I guess. Um, yeah. I think I think the whole MySpace thing passed me by. It was like kind of peak. It was it was because it was before Facebook. It was just sort of peak. Everyone yeah, I didn't had a MySpace page. Yeah, Grace. Yeah. I hate to brag, but yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. actually too young for MySpace. <laughs> All right, podcast at wired.co.uk. Uh, surely some of you have MySpace pages as well. Or if you have general and insightful thoughts about the Digital Services Act or the Digital Markets Act, podcast at wired.co.uk. And we'll include a link to both of Morgan's stories on the DSA in the show notes. Our second story this week is about a mystery disease that's been puzzling doctors. Now, this will be setting off alarm bells for anyone who's around a couple of years ago when a mystery disease that was puzzling doctors swept the world. So, Grace, is this deja vu or nothing to worry about? Um, So, yeah, this all started in about January 2022 when doctors in Scotland began to notice a worrying trend. They were seeing several cases of severe hepatitis in kids aged between about one and five years old. The children were presenting with gastrointestinal symptoms like abdominal pain, diarrhea, vomiting, which was then followed by an onset of jaundice. 
And to see such acute hepatitis, which is kind of a broad term that essentially describes inflammation of the liver in young, and these were previously healthy children as well. That was what was so highly unusual and what made it such a cause for concern. So again, this started in January, cases began to build up. And then by April 5th, the Scottish health authorities had recorded 11 cases at this point. So they notified the World Health Organization, which has then kicked off a massive global investigation that has really left health authorities basically puzzled and searching for answers. So just to give a rundown of the stats so far, cases have now been reported in countries like Denmark, France, Netherlands, Ireland, Romania, Spain, Israel, and it's also been in the US, Asia and Canada. And the cases have really just been growing. And the UK has now reached a total of 114 cases with 10 children requiring a liver transplant, which shows how serious it is. Um, in total, about 190 cases, cases have been logged in at least 12 countries and one child has sadly died. So this is quite scary, really. I mean, we were all kind of hyper-attuned to this kind of stuff now. And the most unusual and perhaps the most worrying part of it is that we don't really, or at least scientists don't really know what's causing these cases, right? Yeah, what struck me about this piece and, you know, having covered COVID for a long time is that, you know, we've we've figured out what's going on with COVID and maybe new variants will arise and all that kind of stuff. But really with this one, what's so puzzling is that we actually don't know what's causing these cases. Um and like I said, it's so rare to see such acute cases of hepatitis in previously healthy children. So one of the first things that doctors tend to do when they see hepatitis is to look for an exposure to a toxin or a drug. So basically an overdose of paracetamols, you know, a very simple drug like paracetamol can actually tr- trigger liver damage and cases of hepatitis. But so far, the toxicology screenings haven't turned up anything that looks like it would be a probable explanation. So next, the doctors wondered if maybe the children were actually suffering from viral hepatitis. Uh, Viral hepatitis is typically caused by an infection with one of the five hepatitis viruses, A through D, sorry, A through E. Um, However, hepatitis viruses weren't actually detected in any of these kids, so that can be ruled out as well. Uh, But there was one virus that kept turning up in many of the children, and no, it actually was not SARS-CoV-2. It was a virus called adenovirus, and this is a family of common viruses, um, and it's one of the main uh, causes of the common cold. So, you know, it's not a very severe viral infection. But around three quarters of the British children who've fallen in so far have tested positive for one type of adenovirus. Um, But what's kind of strange is that they've actually been testing positive for other adenoviruses as well. So really, it's all very murky. But one adenovirus uh, specifically has been singled out, F41. It's been detected in multiple children's blood tests so far. Um, So for right now, the adenovirus is the theory that's gaining the most traction. When I was reading your story, my first thought was like, is this like a statistical thing in the sense that obviously they found this case in Scotland and then the WHA started looking for more cases and then obviously they found more cases. And I, I wonder whether, or at least I wondered whether it was because they were looking, they were finding more. And if they hadn't looked, that they wouldn't have, and it wouldn't look so scary because those cases would have just been treated and maybe this is just a statistical phenomenon rather than a widespread thing that's happening. But as you say, so they're looking at these adenoviruses, but those are normally pretty mild. And although they've been known to cause hepatitis in the past on rare occasions, it's not normally in healthy children it's usually in immunocompromised individuals that these viruses or this family of viruses has an effect so whereas all these children were previously kind of well and healthy right yeah that's what makes the story so so complicated the adenoviruses should not be making the kids this sick basically um and so yeah scientists have been scrambling to kind of figure out what is actually happening there was one theory that maybe it could be the case that a mutated form of adenovirus is circulating which could potentially explain why they're having a more severe than usual reaction 
Um, and then one theory that's gained a lot of traction on uh, for both positive and nefarious reasons is that actually maybe it is the fact that the same virus that usually goes around every year is the one that's circulating and causing these cases. And that because of lockdown and decreased interactions between people, there has just been less of the virus spreading. And then the idea is that the children have had less exposure to viruses in general throughout the pandemic because of lockdowns and they haven't had a chance to build up the immunity they normally would through you know smearing germs and sneezing on each other in in the playground or whatever um and that's meant that uh more so they just get sicker when they're more exposed because in general i mean we know it's like chicken pox if you get a virus later on in life you tend to get sicker when you do get infected um but there has been some evidence really really strangely that actually maybe that adenoviruses never stop circulating there's some it's very very recent research but um some uh i think it was over the past two years in wales they found that adenoviruses actually just never disappeared which is kind of pokes holes in that theory as well um and one virologist i spoke to pointed out that not every child actually has been found to be infected with that adenovirus so again it just makes it even stranger in denmark where six cases have been reported the majority of the children did not test positive for the virus so there's something very strange going on here. So this virus has been implicated, but not all the children that had this hepatitis had the virus. And the theory that the virus has been spreading or has not been spreading during the pandemic, and that's why it's being more severe now, is counter- contradicted by the fact that, oh, actually, maybe some researchers think it was spreading throughout the pandemic, so you wouldn't mm-hmm. expect to see that effect. So it could just be a coincidence that all these kids had this virus and it, the actual disease they're getting could be for some complete other reason right Mm -hmm. yeah it's totally possible um another virologist that i spoke to pointed out that healthy children tend to shed adenovirus for quite a while after the initial infection has resolved like for as long as six months after so it could be that there's lots of children who are currently shedding adenovirus who are perhaps several weeks or even months away from the time that they were actually infected so where does that leave us now we've got this mystery illness and the the main theory probably doesn't seem to be accurate so what's what's next so they they knew that adenovirus was a good signal and something that they should really be exploring probably the most. But again, like we've talked about, there are some holes in that theory. So now they're thinking that maybe it's a it's the case that it's an adenovirus infection in combination with something else. So and there's a couple of things it could be in combination with. So maybe it's that I mean you know, a lot of children this age, I think it's like most children in the UK especially, have been infected with COVID at this point. So it could be that it's a long term complication of COVID and now that they have the adenovirus it's triggering this you know severe liver damage it could be you know a mixture of adenovirus infection and a toxin or drug exposure that's triggering the illness but again given that the cases have been found in basically a bunch of different continents now that would be very very surprising if that was the case um but one thing that's extremely important to note and a lot of people have latched on to is to point out that none of the children in the uk or or europe have received a covid vaccine so we can definitely rule that out as a cause so again even if it is a combination of these things obviously a lot of kids have had covid and a lot of kids have got these viruses circulating so if it was a combination of these two things would you not expect to see a lot more children having this so it's likely to be a combination of maybe something common with something less common like a particular drug or toxin they're taking so i guess i mean how are they ever going to find this out i mean what's the next step to actually figuring out what's causing this yeah so one thing that would solve a lot of the 
uh, initial questions that we have we'll be figuring out what specific adenovirus is involved and that's what doctors are doing right now uh, they're doing some liver biopsies where they can take the virus essentially out of the the tissue and then perform whole genome sequencing to figure out which virus is actually involved once the genomic sequencing is done it should solve some key, key questions so you know is adenovirus f41 that we that we're dealing with or maybe it's a new variant of the adenovirus that is explaining why such a severe reaction and at the same time a big problem has been that people might be testing for adenovirus in different ways and that's leading to some inconsistencies so really right now they want to make sure that everybody is testing for adenovirus in the same way to to take out some of these inconsistencies so it could be the case that some labs are using testing kits that are less sensitive and might not pick up the adenovirus you know like I said in Denmark most of them didn't test positive but maybe it's the case that they are using quite insensitive tests uh, the UK is already doing this the health security agency has requested that all samples be sent to it for testing to at least try to make the testing within the UK a little bit more uniform. So that will definitely help them build a bigger picture of what's actually causing this disease. So say they do manage to, to narrow it down to a specific type of virus or a specific set of circumstances that's causing this condition in certain kids. What happens next? How do they stop this from growing or spreading? Yeah, so that's the thing. Like Even when we do figure out the cause, there actually won't be a ton of things that we can do to uh, take once we do. So vaccines for adenoviruses do exist, but routine vaccination is the norm because, like I said, you know, it usually cause the common cold. It's not a very, very severe infection. Although an interesting fact is that the only people who get uh, vaccinated for adenovirus are military recruits. And even I was trying to Google to find out why. It wasn't very clear. I think it's just they can't afford, if they do, in fact, get a little bit sicker than a common cold, they can't afford to have them out of training or in combat or whatever um, but I, th I thought that was interesting and vaccines were actually developed for military recruits you know it wasn't for kids it was for soldiers basically um, but if it is the case that adenovirus was triggering triggering the hepatitis it's unlikely that there would be enough time to roll out the vaccine before children were exposed because it's likely that it is just making the rounds at the moment so you know it would take probably months to roll out a vaccine so I think that's kind of a, a null point at the moment um, but most of the experts that I spoke to said that the emphasis rather should be on increasing awareness so that parents can quickly recognize the symptoms in their kids so if they see their kids you know vomiting diarrhea onset jaundice that they can quickly bring them to the hospital um and then also there's we can put a, some emphasis on preventative measures like washing hands and cleaning surfaces if it does turn out to be that adenoviruses are the true call of play what's really interesting about the story for me is the level of awareness we all now have of these previously obscure organizations that are looking at this stuff and mm -hmm. how they look at it and the amount of detail because quite a lot of what you were talking about there was like oh yeah of course they're doing that because that's what they did with covid but mm -hmm. this work is always ongoing with all different kinds of diseases and it's important to remember that right yeah For, yeah definitely i feel like everybody just has an increased awareness of just general viruses that went around that go around all the time like especially like the flu like i never think about the flu but really i feel like from now on we're all going to be really, really aware of these things from speaking to people in the vaccine community for the mrna story i did a couple of weeks ago i think there's a real sense that like they've got to like make the most of this opportunity like everyone's mm. focused on pandemics and disease and viral disease and vaccines right now and that you know that won't be the case in 20 years time and the funding mm. won't be there so can they when there's going to be this glut of funding because everyone's so hyper focused on pandemics really start developing these vaccine platforms that will protect us against things like adenovirus and other viruses in the future 
and even our interest in reporting this story yeah. is a result of a, a general interest in the mm-hmm. newsroom in like the business of science and mm-hmm. the business of sort of forensic epidemiology i guess mm-hmm. yeah definitely yeah which is it's 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 fun obviously bad because children are getting sick but it's really interesting to see how advanced and capable the scientific community is at getting to the root cause of this thing even if they never do the amount of work that goes into it is kind of astonishing all right so the podcast inbox has been a bit quiet the last few weeks so here's a question for everyone to mull over and write in about and actually i'm going to put a couple of you lot on the spot as well if you were elon musk what would you do with twitter podcast at wired.co.uk or amit i would delete twitter you would delete twitter but you love Twitter. I know, but I hate myself for it. <laughs> Morgan, what would you do if you were Elon Musk? Um, maybe ramp up the Tesla advertising on Twitter. Cunning. <laughs> do you not think that might run you afoul of some regulatory authority? Perhaps, but I guess if I was Elon Musk, I'd do it first and find out later. Yeah, move fast and break things. The true Musk way. Grace? Maybe I would make it so that every time you tweeted, there had to be a picture of like a really cute dog or something attached. Yeah, so you just play the troll, basically. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. fun. I was trying to think of something funny to say, but I can't. If you can, podcast at wired.co.uk. You are Elon Musk. What do you do with Twitter? Thanks so much for listening this week. That's it from us. We'll be back again same time next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.